arrogance, envy, and hatred in the witch's cauldron is an ugly sight. A great part of the miseries which have afflicted Europe since the beginning of the nineteenth century have been due to frenzies produced in millions of weak or childish minds by deliberate perversions of history. And one of the worst things about Titus Oates is the malevolence he shows in tainting generous ideas. One aim of this book is to rebut the Titus Oates commentators who have commandeered the history of communist espionage in 20th century Britain. I want to show the malevolence that has been used to taint generous ideas. This is a thematic book. My ruling theme is that it hinders clear thinking if the significance of the Cambridge spies is presented, as they wished it to be, in Marxist terms. Their ideological pursuit of class warfare and their desire for the socialist proletariat to triumph over the capitalist bourgeoisie is no reason for historians to follow the constricting jargon of their faith. I argue that the Cambridge spies did their greatest harm to Britain not during their clandestine espionage in 1934-51, to but in their insidious propaganda victories over British government departments after 1951. The undermining of authority, the rejection of expertise, the suspicion of educational advantages, and the use of the words elite and establishment as derogatory epithets transformed the social and political temper of Britain. The long-term results of the Burgess and Maclean defection reached their apotheosis when joined with other forces in the referendum vote for Brexit on the 23rd of June 2016. The social class of Moscow's agents inside British government departments was mixed. The contours of the espionage and counter-espionage described in Enemies Within, the recurrent types of event in the half-century after 1920, do not fit Marxist class analysis. To follow the communist interpretation of these events is to become the dupe of Muscovite manipulation. The myths about the singularity of the Cambridge spies and the class-bound London establishment's protection of them is belied by comparison with the New Deal officials who became Soviet spies in Roosevelt's Washington. Other comparisons are made with the internal dynasties of the KGB and with MI5's penetration agents within the Communist Party of Great Britain. The belief in establishment cover-ups is based on willful misunderstanding. The primary aim of counterintelligence is not to arrest spies and put them on public trial, profitable though this may be to newspapers in times of falling sales or national insecurity. The evidence to the Senate Intelligence Committee tendered in 2017 by James Comey, recently dismissed as Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation by President Donald Trump, contains a paragraph that, with the adjustment of a few nouns, summarizes the policy of MI5 during the period of this book. It is important to understand that FBI counterintelligence investigations are different than the more commonly known criminal investigative work. The Bureau's goal in a counterintelligence investigation is to understand the technical and human methods that hostile foreign powers are using to influence the United States or to steal our secrets. The FBI uses that understanding to disrupt those efforts. Sometimes, disruption takes the form of alerting a person who is targeted for recruitment or influence by the foreign power. Sometimes, it involves hardening a computer system that is being attacked. Sometimes, it involves 
turning the recruited person into a double agent, or publicly calling out the behavior with sanctions or expulsions of embassy-based intelligence officers. On occasion, criminal prosecution is used to disrupt intelligence activities. For MI5, as for Comey's FBI, the first priority of counter-espionage was to understand the organization and techniques of their adversaries. The lowest priorities were arrests and trials. The Marxist indictment of Whitehall's leadership takes a narrow, obsolete view of power relations. Inclusiveness entails not only the mesh of different classes, but the duality of both sexes. In the period covered by this book and long after, women lacked the status of men at all social levels. They were repulsed from the great departments of state. The interactions in such departments were wholly masculine.